I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you can't change other people, you can only change yourself. Well, it's not true. In fact, if you're a leader or a manager, it's your obligation to change other people, to help them become better at what they do, to become stronger. And if you care about the people in your life, then it's your longing to help them change in ways that support their own growth. This is the subject of my newest book, which I wrote with my good friend Howie Jacobson. It's called You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Employees colleagues, even family up their game. It's based on my coaching methodology that I've worked on over the past 30 years, brought to you in a practical, step-by-step format that you can start using immediately. You can get it wherever books are sold. To download a sample chapter, either in written form or audio version, visit bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. That's one word, bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. And if you've already enjoyed You Can Change Other People, please consider leaving a review on Amazon to help others just like you discover the book. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. Today we have a first of three part series that we are doing with Jim Lair. Jim Lair is a uh, world renowned performance psychologist. He has written the book Leading with Character most recently and also the Personal Credo Journal. Over the next three episodes that will be airing each one uh, a week apart, um, we will be talking with him about the power of full engagement, about how to manage your energy in a way that lets the best of who you are show up is the importance of character and why character is is so critical to how we live life and actually makes the difference at the end with whether we've lived a good life or not from our perspective and how to do that uh and i'm just delighted delighted to have uh jim uh on the podcast with us jim welcome to the bregman leadership podcast Thank you very much, Peter. I'm excited to join you and uh, looking forward to our conversation together. So let's start with the powerful engagement since we, you know, you and I, before the show, we're starting to talk about it a little bit. Um, I, I always felt like in a time, from a time perspective, the uh, time management always missed it because there was, there was a myth that if you only use my process, if you only focus on these things, et cetera, you can get it all done. And, and the reality is we're never going to get it all done. And we have to make choices intentionally and strategically about what to do and what not to do. You approach time management with, I think, that same uh, myth, you know, countering that same myth, but in a different way. Tell us about the powerful engagement. So it's an interesting uh, confrontation with a myth that's been perpetuated for a very long time by a billion-dollar industry, the time, the time management industry. Stephen Covey and... His, even his uh, son, Stephen M. R. Covey, was on our board, um, and I would confront him with this, and nobody had any answer. Um, and the, the, I said, you know, you, it's time management. No one's really thought it through. It's based on a false premise. And here's the premise. If you really want to have a successful life, you want to truly be happy and fulfilled, the first thing you have to do is to know what really matters to you. You have to know your values. You have to make, you know, real clear distinctions between what are your priorities in life. And once you know that, 
then all you have to do is strategically begin to invest time aligned with those priorities. Um, and in so doing, you will have um, very productive life, a very um, fulfilling life. And I would say to, uh, and I'd say to Stephen MR, I'd say, is, is that right? And he said, yeah, it's pretty close, that's it. And I'd say, well, that is unequivocally false because uh, it has nothing to do, time has no valence, has no power, has, has nothing. It's since an opportunity to invest the one thing that actually changes everything, that actually is the prime mover in life, and that is energy. And if you uh, summon the energy according to those priorities and make things happen, then time management has great value. But it's only in the ability that you have to, uh, it's not how long you live, it's the energy you bring aligned with the deepest values and beliefs that you have uh, aligned with your, with your energy investments. And that is for me the, we would see at our institute, we had a, a complete tennis academy and we would see all these kids, a lot of the kids would show up perfectly on time and get virtually nothing back on the return because they were not energized. They just weren't there. And some kids were actually late, but the whole time they were energized, got a great return. And this same thing is true in our lives. We might be home for four hours and we give ourselves a pat on the back because we're with our family and we're aligned you know, there's four hours with what we care about, but you've got a reverse return on that because you were disengaged, you were grouchy, you were watching TV, you were doing something else. And the return that you got was that your family doesn't think you're that, that they mean that much to you because other things captured your energy. So, so Jim, uh, to, to, Jim, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm curious, I want to get clear on the definition of energy because there's a lot of different ways that we can think about right. it. So what do you mean by energy? Energy is simply um, the uh, ability to do work. Uh, it's defined in physics as the capacity for work. And human energy um, is actually not unlike energy in the universe. Um, it has quantity, quality, focus, and intensity. And uh, as Einstein said, nothing moves until energy causes it to move. And energy is produced in the mitochondria of the cells we have about 10 trillion cells in our body and every single cell has its own energy production plant. And that plant really functions off two primary resources. One is glucose and the other is oxygen. And the ignition of oxygen and glucose produces energy in that cell. And then you get to decide where you wanna put your energy. And if you have a lot of energy, you could be a big spender. Uh, but energy is not infinite. You have to constantly replenish those energy stores. If you want to have a big life, you have to be a big spender. If you want to be a big spender, you have to make big deposits. And that's where uh, we develop this notion of energy expenditure and energy recovery in balance. The body loves balance and it doesn't like being out of balance. And if you're out of balance, the body gets very energy stingy. Uh, you, you develop this preference for really, uh, really protecting your energy, conserving energy. There's a conserving energy bias in the system, which is traceable all the way back to our ancestors who didn't have a lot of food and water and shelter. And so they only did things that aided survival and propagation of the species. 
but we have a lot of that now, but we, we we're really not that keen on what it is we should be spending our energy for and how critical it is our, our most precious resource. And without it, nothing happens. And uh, so I spent, I spent a lot of time on that, on that page. Yeah, it's so it's 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 really fascinating. I love the way that you're thinking about this. And I I this I don't know if this is a question or I guess it's a question to see kind of your view on it, which is when you when you use that example of like you could be present at your house for four hours and and be in an angry mood and like you know, you could be frustrated and angry and et cetera. That actually takes a lot of energy. Like you could have, you know, negative energy is a tremendous amount of energy. And I don't even know negative because maybe we don't put a value judgment on anger. Anger could actually be very useful energy in certain situations. But if you're at home with your kids and your family and you're trying to connect, that um, you know, coming at it with frustration or anger, et cetera, is a huge energy suck, but very ineffective in terms of what you're trying to achieve in relationship. So I wonder if there's a value to the energy and that maybe you, you mentioned the word quality of energy, the um, quality of the energy that you bring to a situation um, needs to match that situation. And I wonder how you think about that. So, you know, I call this special, special spot in people's lives where you bring your absolute full and best energy, full engagement. It's the acquired ability to invest your full and best energy right here, right now, and whatever you're doing. And that's how you show you care. People don't want your time. They want your energy in whatever time you have. And that is a, it's a massive, you know, kind of, you know, you know, change in the way people think about things. So energy has quantity, like it does in the universe. And that's the amount of stores you have, oxygen, transport, glucose stabilization, and all the other resources that produce energy. And then energy has quality. Quality of energy comes from the, uh, from the emotional side of the equation. We are powerful um, um, in, in the context of our evolutionary history. There's a powerful link to emotion. It's one of the most important parts of who we are. And the, the more positive the emotion, the higher the level of energy. It's like you can put low octane fuel in a car or high octane fuel. If you really want to perform at your best and be at your best, um, usually the, the valence, the positive emotions like joy and challenge and excitement and opportunity create the, high, the best energy with the least kind of toxicity. But all emotions, negative and positive, require energy. And as you say, sometimes anger is actually very useful or even fear might be quite useful but they are very high consumers of energy. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then energy also has focus and that comes from the mental side where you deliberately and intentionally decide where you want your energy to go in this moment. And that is, uh, it's a very big, it's everything from storytelling to all of the things we think about this, what I call the evolutionary upgrade, this prefrontal cortex, this neocortex that allows us to think about what we're thinking. We can actually think about what we're thinking right now and decide where we want our energy to go intentionally, which is not possible for any other species other than man that we know that, that we know of. And then we have the intensity of energy, which comes from the spiritual dimension, the, 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 
dimension of purpose, the dimension of values and character. And I spent the last 10 years of my life really looking at that equation, the importance of purpose, the importance of intensity in everything we do, and how do we support that? So in some ways, we should, before we engage in any activity, maybe we should be asking ourselves two questions. One is, is this worth the energy? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out a bunch of energy in this. Is it worth the energy? Maybe if people are having a big argument about politics, and I don't think I can change anyone's opinion or have any impact, I walk past it because I say, it's very tempting. Like, you know, anytime I have food in my hand, my dog really, really wants to put the energy to get it. Um, and people are like that with conversations that we shouldn't really be in, right? And so, so maybe the first question to ask is, is this worth the energy? And then the second question to ask is, what kind of energy, what is the quality of the energy that I should bring to this situation that will have a positive impact and give me joy? Yeah, it's really the quantity, it's the quality, it's the focus and intensity of the energy, which is the greatest gift you have to give. And it's hard work. I mean, when you come home at night and you're exhausted and you want to connect with your family and you rally for the first 30 minutes, your full engagement, you're excited, you're positive, you're focused, you're not multitasking, you're 100% there, you have great passion in your voice and how you look, you're not a dead person walking. And they see that and they realize that you're taking life out of your body when there isn't a whole lot left and giving it to them. And that is the greatest evidence that you deeply care. That's what people want from us. And so you're absolutely right, Peter. You have to decide very consciously because we energy is limited. Even if you're a you know, marathon and have great oxygen transport, you're training like an elite athlete, you still have a limitation on how much you can spend. So you have to be very, very careful and very conscious of where your energy is flowing. And the other thing that's so important is that we learned that wherever your energy goes, you give it life. So if you give a lot of energy to anger or victimhood or anything that you give, your, you're like a gardener, you can decide what you want to grow. And it is your energy that spawns growth. Just like if you want to have you know, extraordinary biceps, you have to go in the gym and invest extraordinary energy in those biceps. And you have to decide, is that something I want? Do I want the twin guns on both sides? Is that going to add, add a lot to my life? Because I could be putting that energy into something else. And am I going to be fully engaged in the 30 minutes I'm in the gym? Because if I'm not, I'm not going to get a great return for that investment. And the same thing applies to integrity and love and caring. Those are all metaphorical muscles that respond uh, and are stimulated by energy investment repeatedly. And the body goes, well, I don't know why this is so, why he's doing this, but we must need more integrity, more honesty, more whatever, just like more bicep. And the more you realize that, you realize you have a lot of control as long as you are doing your homework and getting energy to, uh, to be a big spender. So one of the gifts of your new book, Leading with Character and, and uh, the Personal Credo, but really Leading with Character, is the underlying idea that character is a choice. It's Absolutely. not innate. It's a choice. Can you talk to us about that? You were just talking a little bit about it. Yeah. So, you know, I, this, I came to this whole character space as a performance psychologist completely by accident. 
if you'd have told me in the beginning of my career that where I went through graduate school and master's and doctoral programs and stuff, and you know, character was a, a thing of philosophy, it had nothing to do with psychology. How did I get as a performance psychologist in the character space? I'm a data guy. And we had probably today some 400,000 people went through our institute. And we've collected so much data that that's all we did was collect data. Uh, I'm, I'm, I want reality. I don't want fluff. I want real things and I want to create real value for people or I don't want to do it. And so we began to realize that there was something going on in our best performers, even if they achieved a lot, even if they won a gold medal or became number one in the world, there was this kind of gnawing sense that they were incomplete. They felt, well, maybe I need to do it again. Maybe the first time was luck. And so they would go do it again. And there was this, maybe they had this great joy and elation for just a few weeks, maybe even days, and then they felt kind of empty again. And I began to realize there's another scorecard and it's not just these extrinsic markers that were actually using to determine whether or not our life is actually worth living and actually making uh, some kind of contribution that I'm going to be proud of. And so um, I, we started looking more and more into this notion of purpose and character and what we came to call kind of a, a transcendent purpose, a purpose beyond oneself that connected you to other human beings, which took us into the moral and ethical space. Your treatment of others, we learned, is a very important scorecard that uh, we believe comes all the way from our ancestors. Those who cared for others were trustworthy, um, you could rely on, that have compassion and warmth and even humility. And there, there was something that, that, that it brought everyone together in a, in a village or in a, in a culture that aided survival. And those who went off on their own and just did their own thing didn't make it. And we're all descendants of those who were connected in a very critical way to each other because that's how they survived. And so um, thousands of people we would ask, what do you want on your tombstone? What are the markers you want on your tombstone? If you had six or eight words, what would those words be that really reflected who you were that you would be most proud of? What are those words? And nobody put up two, two Olympic medals, two gold, one silver. Nobody said corner office. Nobody said I, um, I, I made a million dollars in a single year. All that just faded away. What did matter was your connection to other people. And I came to call that the hidden scorecard. And at the end of your life, the only thing will really matter. I can pretty much tell you from all the data we've collected, is how you treated other people, your connection, your caring, your devotion to helping other people rise up and be successful. And that's where we come up with this purpose in life is really not so much about you. This was a gift was given to you. And the more you understand when you give it away, you get a life and it never was about you, never will be about you. And if you triumph and summit the mountain, that's a great thing, but it, it will be a kind of a, unless that makes you a better person in terms of your connection to others, if you had to walk over dead bodies to get to the summit, it probably won't last long. And then you're gonna to wanna to summit again very quickly.
So let me, I have so many questions for you. This is amazing, by the way. I'm so, uh, I'm, I'm, this is our first meeting in person, but it's it, it, hopefully not the last because I, I love everything that you're saying. So I was playing a game of Monopoly with my son and a few other people, and and it was you know super fun, and and my son got super aggressive because uh, he you know he's very competitive, especially when you he's winning. Win. Yeah, exactly. And then I thought afterwards, like life. Is, I mean, this is going to sound silly, but life is so much like a game of Monopoly, which is when you're in it you're going, you know, you're competing and the competition is fun and you're having fun with people and you're, and you want to win. And, and, you know, like a lot of the joy is in that competition and trying to win after the game, like once the game's done and you put the money back in the bank and, and you close up the box, like the only thing that matters is the relationship you had with the people you were playing with. So during the game, of course, the relationship feels important, but it's the competition that overwhelms us and the, you know, and, and trying to win and making money and getting properties. And, you know, my son, when, when we were, the people we were playing with, it was some cousins, the people we were playing with, they really wanted to stop playing. It was getting late at night. And, you know, my son was in a role and we had teamed up into two teams. I was in this team with my son. And, and, and they landed on Park Place and they had to pay us $2,500 and they didn't have that money. And I said, okay, the game's over. And my son, who's 14, said, no, it's not over. I'm like, Daniel, it, it's over. The, we've taken all their money. Like, like the game is over. And he looked at me and he said, they can still mortgage their properties, right? <laughs> and, I, and I said, Dan, I mean, we were all laughing, but I was like, Daniel, leave them with some dignity, like, like let them keep their houses. Um, but like that's, that, that can kind of take us over in the game. And then you shut the game and you realize, well, we had a really nice time and that's all that mattered. And that's really all that matters. Like, you know, a year from now, who's, I mean, I, he'll probably remember that we still won that particular game, but in general, in general, he wouldn't. And I'm curious to hear you talk about this. You know, we talk about the tombstone and we talk about, you know, life as we're living it. And when you're going to the Olympics, you care about winning. Like that, that's driving you. And yet what you're saying is also very true, which is after all, it's the relationship. And I just want to throw one more complexity into this, Jim which is if you know David McClellan's research from Harvard and social motivation, and the idea that we're all motivated by some degree of achievement, power, and affiliation. And power, I think of as influence, personal and, and societal, and, and empowerment. And what I wonder about is, is there, are, 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 do some people want to write on their tombstone, I won. You know, I made a billion dollars. Like I, like, is there a, from, you know, from a social motivation, some people are very, very achievement oriented and some people are more affiliation. And so it, are the affiliation driven people, which is all about loved and being, being loved and loving. And are those people more likely to care about the relationships than the people who are more uh, achievement driven? All right. I've just thrown a lot of questions at you. Well, first of all, we had thousands and thousands of people go through this and from every walk of life and from every culture, every country in the world. And no one came up with the idea when I win, when I'm, you know, making a million dollars and that, but that, is, that question comes after a lot of soul searching, a lot of homework, a lot of thinking about what they want their life to be. And so really what you're, what you're talking about here 
um, is the power of this achievement motive. And we, society has pretty much deemed that that is how you define success in life. It's pretty much extrinsic achievement, how much money, the house you, you live in, the neighborhood you live in, the car you drive, and your, fam your friends, accomplishments, your resume. That's the, that's the story of a successful life. Parents get caught up in that with their kids. And so we're pushing this achievement uh, standard as the ultimate scorecard. And I can tell you it, that like the time management you know, assumption, it really has some serious, serious flaws in its fabric. And let's just go back to, to this monopoly game that you were playing with your son and with these other um, friends of your son. The issue there is what is what was the real purpose for you playing the game? And what was the purpose for you wanting your son or those kids to play? Is the goal ultimately winning or is the goal to develop skills that in some way might help them be more successful and a better human being later on. If you look at, I mean, it's more important than the Monopoly game was who they became as a consequence of playing that game. It's the person inside and what they're becoming that is the real end goal here. So if your son is beginning to get more dominant and, and starts to, uh, do handstands and humiliating everyone else, is that what you want? There's a teachable moment for you because he's gonna be in the same, that's what bullying often is on the internet. So parents have a critical role in trying to understand what is this all about? What is the ultimate game? You have the game of Monopoly, then you have the game of life. And the game of Monopoly should simply help you win in the bigger game of life. And you can be extrinsically motivated and be so addicted to fame, money, glory, success, that everything else is taken a second or backseat to that. I can guarantee you where that's going to take you based on our data. Right. So that's great. And, and, and I just want to sort of be clear in order to save uh, the reputation of my son's character. We were no, I'm not, I'm not no, indicting your son's character. No, but I, just want to, I want to say we were playing with adults. He was the only kid. Uh, okay. we were, it, was, it was other adults. And, uh, and it was, and everybody was having fun. Like he was, you know, he was playing, he was joking, but he was having fun. But I want to throw that piece in because there's the winning, there's the ultimate reason that, you know, the life lessons you can get from playing. And then there's the fun of playing, which you didn't necessarily mention in those two. And, and I think that's really, I think that's really important to people. And I think that you know, when you said, why are you playing the game? Is it to win or to, you know, learn these life lessons? My answer was, you know, I, I, we were playing to have fun. And, and have fun is intricately connected to the relationships you have with people. If you're humiliating and, and people, know you're striving fun. to win as well. Yeah I'm, yeah. I'm a performance psychologist. I'm in the game of winning. I help people win. That's what I am. That's what I am supposed to do. I am in with sports with all the extraordinary athletes. I work with 17 number ones in the world. I mean, they come to me and all, even the Institute, it's about winning, but it's about understanding who you're becoming in the chase to the top. 
And when you become an extraordinary human being with your connections with others, and you also scale the top of the mountain, that is what we're all seeking. But the priority is the person. So, you know, I developed this whole thing called an ideal performance state. And part of that ideal, if you could put one word that was the elixir, the, the chemistry of fun and the chemistry of one's best performance state, it's the closest would be the state of fun. The idea that you enjoy what you're doing. And so if you wanna be the best, if you can enjoy that Monopoly game and enjoy the, all the moves and exciting, and it's a lot more fun generally at the end when you win, but if you become kind of conditioned and love competing, you love competing even if you lose, we're beginning to get you into that competitive mindset. And then the way in which you change as a person as a result of your competitiveness, that's the real issue that I'm concerned about. And it really surprises me that I'm in that chair when my whole life I've been trying to get people to summit and to do things that no one else has ever done before because I've helped them get to the top and that top is often very empty and they can't quite figure out what is missing in my life because I've done all these things and then we get deeper into it and they begin to realize there's, there's a number of scorecards that we use. And really the most important one is who in the hell you have become as a consequence of this chase. And what is the price you've had to pay to get to the top? We have been talking with Jim Lair. He wrote The Powerful Engagement. He also wrote Leading with Character uh, and, and many other books. He is the founder of the Human Performance Institute. He's a renowned performance psychologist. Um, we are going to, uh, for listeners, uh, pause the conversation here. This is part. This is the end of part one. And now, uh, and and uh, tune back in for part two with Jim Lair, where we will start to answer the question he just asked, which is, you know, how do we go from winning in in like the sense of competing to win with the sort of hollow, false top of the mountain? to get to the next uh, phase, which is to how to really make meaning, uh, which has to do with character and build the kinds of relationships that we want to imbue our tombstones with eventually. So uh, Jim, uh, for, for this part, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. No, I enjoyed it. I love the interaction. Those are great questions. Uh, and uh, hope our listeners got some uh, value from this interaction. If you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast, then you also might enjoy my newest book, You Can Change Other People. You can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold or by going to bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. That's one word. If you've already enjoyed the book and found it useful, consider telling a friend or leaving a review on Amazon. Leaving a review helps retailers recommend the book to others just like you. So it's really helpful. Thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next great conversation.